Today we're walking through Luke 5 in verses 1 through 11. The sermon is entitled, Saints in Service of the King. And we begin with the first three verses of this passage. Let's look at those verses as an introduction. Verse, chapter Luke 5 and verses 1 through 3. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking. And we have this beginning portion here that's kind of setting the stage. It's kind of giving us a kind of an understanding, a framework whereby we can understand what's going to come next. Jesus was in ministry at this time, and the fishermen, Simon and Andrew and the others, were coming alongside them, but they were still within their occupation of fishing. They were still vocationally fishermen, but they participated in the ministry of Jesus during this time. And Jesus was, even at this time, beginning to raise great crowds around him. And so this is something that was really common for people to come around Jesus, and Jesus would begin to teach them. And they were pressing upon him so much, and there were so many around him, that Jesus had asked Peter to let him into the boat and to bring the boat out just a little ways. You know, and it's at times like this that I really reflect on the reality that Jesus must have had just a trumpet of a voice. He must have been just an incredible speaker. The ability to be outside as he was and to speak in such a way that thousands of people could hear him. Now, there's many men that have lived that have had such an ability. I don't have such an ability myself, or at least I've never had a need to raise up such an ability. We've relied on electronic means of amplification for so long. But at this time period, it was very necessary. And if you were someone who had a very quiet voice, you were not going to be speaking to thousands of people, but Jesus had that gift as others like Spurgeon had the ability to speak to a very large group of people for sustained periods of time. And Jesus uses Peter's boat during this time, standing upon that boat, preaching there upon the water, and speaking to this people, proclaiming to them the good news of the kingdom of God. And it's upon this one occasion that Jesus uses this opportunity as an illustration to call Peter and the others into formal ministry, to full-time ministry. He he will give them an illustration that they will never forget all of the, the years of their life, and they will walk away from it all and go to follow Jesus, to faithfully trust in Him and serve Him in vocational ministry. I think it's very applicable to us. Uh, this is, this is a, a passage that has for some time been one that has been peculiar to me, one that has greatly fascinated me. There's two things I want us to pull out of this. The first, I believe we see, is the, the foolishness of, of fishing and this illustration that Jesus is 
going to show to Peter in this passage that he is going to call Peter to do that which is absurd from any worldly understanding. He's going to call him to cast his nets at a time when no one would expect to catch anything using a method that no one would expect to result in a catch. And secondly, we see the fruitfulness of faithfulness. The fruitfulness of faithfulness. He is calling them to be faithful. He's not calling them to control the providence of God. He's not calling them to be omnipotent. He's not calling them to take the reins of the world and control the world through the methods of men. He's calling them to be faithful. And it's in that faithfulness that the Lord demonstrates His power and the fruitfulness is demonstrated. Let's look at that first point. The the foolishness of fishing we see in this passage. Verses 4 and 5 in Luke chapter 5. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Peter says to Jesus, Master, we toiled all night. We took nothing. What's the significance of this? Is he just complaining? Is he just tired? Look, I'm tired of fishing. I don't feel like fishing anymore. Is he, is, he, is, he, is he saying, like, look, I know more about this than you do, Jesus. I'm a fisherman after all. You're not a fisherman. See, Peter's communicating something very particular here. He is communicating to Jesus something about the art of fishing that he was involved in. He was a fisherman. He understood how to fish. And he, they, did, they weren't fishing like you might think that they were fishing. They didn't just have, now people would use this method, but this isn't the method they were using at this time. They weren't just going out and throwing, a ro- you know, using a rod and throwing out bait and then pulling it in and grabbing something and then trying again. They were rather using nets, and these nets would be done one of two ways. You could drag a very large net between two boats and drag it across the water, or you could have a boat with two nets that would go out and they would be very large. They would go deep into the water, and the boat would move, and it would catch fish as the boat was moving. They had done this all night long. And they had done this all night long because that's how this particular style of fishing works. That's when the larger fish are active, The smaller fish are out during the night because the sunlight's not shining into the water, and so they are safer. It's not as easy to see them, but the reality is you also have these nets that are visible during the day. And so these large fish are just going to swim away from these nets because they can see them. What Jesus is telling him to do from a fishing standpoint is completely absurd. So see this miracle, not just that it is a very large catch of fish, because it is. It was an exceptional catch of fish. It is so exceptional that the the nets are starting to break. They're having to call another boat over. Come over here. We, We need to put fish into your boat. 
And then the boats are starting to sink. Part of this miracle is that fishing this way is completely inappropriate. It's not how you would go about If you wanted to catch fish, you don't use the dragnet during the day. It has to be used at night. And that's the reality that is here. Peter is seeing this. And we must not look over this so quickly. And what's the tie here to Christian ministry? What's the tie here to Christian ministry? The tie here in ministry is to use the methods that the Lord Jesus has given to us. Peter was given a command by Jesus to put the nets down. He was called to place them down. He wasn't called to analyze Jesus' methods of fishing. He wasn't called to go and to consider based upon this, this particular lake and where they are, how it is they need to go about fishing in this place. Jesus told him, put the nets down. Put the net down. And he was faithful in that. It seemed absurd. It was absurd. Except for the fact that Jesus was going to fill the nets with fish. Jesus is the one who filled the nets. Could Peter go and brag? Could Peter say, look at this great method that I've come up with. Look at the ways in which I put the nets down. Look at the ways in which we cleaned them and tied them up just right to bring about this great catch of fish. Not at all. Not at all. He can take no glory for himself. He can rejoice in this catch of fish, but he cannot take uh, any, any pride in that as though it was something that he accomplished in and of himself. And I want you to think about this. Understanding the, the, the means and the methods the Lord has given for the church to operate within the culture. And I want you to see what the Lord has given for the church to do has been incredibly influential. It started with Jesus and 12 men And then it expanded out to 120 people in an upper room. And it expanded in one generation to stretch all the way to the known world at that time. The the gospel had spread and you you can find the Christian religion throughout this world. Yes, there's places. Yes, there's places that that do not have churches. I, I, I admit that. But the means that the Lord has used to spread His church, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, to bring people to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ is not a method that would normally be used in religion. What would man's methodology be? Man's methodology first would probably be to take up arms. You can see a great number of religions that are spread in that means. Now, there's been people that have sought to spread Christianity through that means through those methods. And there's a trail of blood that follows those methods. Those are not the means. You can get someone to confess Jesus by putting a sword to their throat, but you can't change their heart that way. No, the Lord must work upon that person. The Lord must change that person. And that change of heart comes about through the proclamation of the gospel, comes through a declaration of the law of God that people would see the seriousness of their sin, that they would see the ways in which they have violated the law of God, that even on their best days, even on the times in which they've tried their hardest, they have fallen short of the requirement in God's law. 
They are without hope. But God showed his love. God showed his kindness. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Christ fulfilled this law that you have violated, dear friend, in every respect. He never sinned. Christ took upon himself the consequences of sin on behalf of his people. That whoever believes upon him, the righteousness of Christ will be granted to them. It will be, the word we use is imputed. It is placed in their account. Your sin will be placed upon Christ. And his righteousness will be placed in your account. And so when the Lord looks upon you, he's not looking at all of your failings in life. He's not looking at all of the ways in which you've fallen short of God's holy law. He is looking at the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, who took away the penalty of sin. Understand this. The Bible says that all who do not believe in Jesus, the wrath of God is over them. That is your reality, dear friend, if you are not in Christ. God has no grandchildren. You are not born into the kingdom of God. There is nothing that anyone can do on your behalf to make you a Christian. You could get baptized when you're a baby. It doesn't make you a Christian. You could be brought to church every Sunday. It doesn't make you a Christian. Praise be to God that you're being brought to church every Sunday, but that doesn't make you a Christian. For a Christian is one who is actually in Christ Jesus, one who has actually seen the reality and the seriousness of their sin, one who has actually repented of their sin and turned toward Christ Jesus to trust upon him, to believe upon him, to trust in his righteousness, in his finished work on the cross, not in their own good works, not in their own efforts, but in Christ's works. That is the hope that we have. That is the only means the Lord has given whereby you can be saved. And that is the means the Lord has given for us to call people to Christ Jesus. Not to amaze them with entertainment. Not not, not to amaze them in ways in which we can take out loans and put on shows. It is so simple, the means the Lord has given that some of the poorest people that have ever lived upon the earth have come to faith in Jesus Christ and they are wealthier in Christ than the totality of the wealth of this world. I want you to see this. I want you to understand this because Paul even declares this reality that this method... This method of calling people to faith in Jesus Christ through preaching, through the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ is foolish from a worldly standard. It doesn't make any sense. This is not the methods that are given to win friends and influence people. This is offensive to people. You are beginning a conversation with someone and telling them, if not at the beginning, at some point in that conversation, you are telling them that they are an enemy of God. They are at war with God. 
They are on the alliance of Satan. They are a child of the devil. And they must see that reality. They must understand the danger of their circumstance. And they must see no hope in and of themselves. They must turn to Jesus. That is offensive. That is offensive. That is also offensive to someone because then they begin to see the ways in which people they love, people have cared for them, people who have been kind to them, do not trust in Jesus. And you begin to have these conversations. Someone says, so what are you saying about my grandmother? What are you saying about my great aunt? What, are, you, are you saying that my father is not right with God? All people everywhere are born dead. As Pastor Fry read earlier in the book of Psalm, none of them are seeking after God. That is our natural state. That's where we are. We've got to be changed. And that is offensive. This is a method that from a worldly standard makes no sense at all. What sense does it make for the Lord to sanctify his people through ordinary means of grace? Through a group of for you sitting here just listening to me speak and expound the word of God. Us gathering together to sing. You can't see God. You're singing to him. You're praying to God. You can't see him. You can't touch him. Singing around reading scriptures that were written thousands of years ago in languages that you don't even speak. Week in and week out, this one in seven pattern that the Lord has given. And then this emphasis on baptism and the Lord. But shouldn't there be some more? Don't we need some more going on? Don't we need incense? Don't we need lights? Don't we need lasers? Don't we need smoke? This is not enough for this culture, you could argue. This is not enough for any culture. See, this Christianity transcends culture. Christianity connects you to the eternal God. It is far beyond this culture and any other culture Christianity is far beyond cultures that lived prior to this one and the ones that will come forward in the future. This is the method that the Lord has called, the method that the Lord is using. We're called to be faithful, faithful in the methods that we have been given. So Peter says, we, we've fished all night. This doesn't make sense. You told me to put the nets down. I will put the nets down. That's where we must trust, dear friends. We must trust God in our families. The Lord has given this means of sanctification, of bringing people to faith in Christ Jesus. Dear friends, don't neglect it. Don't neglect the gathering of the saints. There's so many things that we can get distracted with in our families. I know. I've got a six-year-old all the way up to a 17-year-old. I'm still learning in this process as well, but there's a reality that we must prioritize that which is primary. We must look beyond even where we are now and be looking even into eternity and understand what has the Lord called us to do, what is primary. 
God has given us wisdom. You know, it's so interesting. I, I can be talking to someone in counseling sometimes, and, and I, can, I can ask someone. I can, they're, they're struggling in some way. There's a difficulty that they're having, and Pastor Fry does the exact same thing as he's meeting with people, and you begin to sit down with them, and they're struggling with their marriage or with their children. They're having these particular difficulties, which, which people do have. There's no getting away from them. We can't run from our problems. We must run to them. But you can ask them, what is, is most important in your life? What, what, is, what should be primary? And you begin to, to walk through that which is, should be primary. And they will say so many spiritual things. I've never had a man sit before me and say, well, what these are your primary is I need to get a raise or, or I need to get a promotion. No one says, well, what needs to be primary is, is the basketball team and traveling around the country to go on the basketball team. No, it's always spiritual things. We should read the Bible. We should be in church. We should gather together. We should fellowship. All the, okay, so let's prioritize these 1 through 10. Okay, and then you talk a little bit. And say, oh, let's go over your schedule now. See, I'm saying this now. Some of y'all are going to like, it's not going to work because you're going to be like, ah, I'm going to say both on both sides now. But then you begin to walk through that person's schedule and they this is what I'm doing. You say, this is what you said is primary. This is what you're doing. And there's a disconnect that is here. We need to see the wisdom of God in what He's called us to do. How we are called to be faithful. Let's consider some passages in the New Testament that talk about the means that God uses for affecting His people, for changing people. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul admits, worldly standard, this is folly, this is foolishness. You're not going to save people like this. You need to look at the culture and see what methods they desire. The reality is people don't know what they need most of the time. And they don't want what they need. True love shares that with them. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. When you receive the word of God, you heard it from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's the word of God that's working in them. Not man's methods not man's schemes. The primacy of the proclamation of the gospel, the necessity, Romans 10 and verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For I says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The necessity of the proclamation of the gospel going forward. That is the means that the Lord is using and it does transform cultures. It does transform families. It's the Lord's methods, the Lord's means. We must trust in the Lord's providence to bring these things about. 
James 1, beginning in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You see this emphasis on the word of God. This proclamation, we could read passage after passage. And I just had a conversation with someone, you know, even this week, and it's a regular one that happens. It's, well, look, if, if God's saving people, if he's just going to do this, what does it even matter? Why, why even share the gospel? If God's sovereign, he's going to do what he's going to do. Why proclaim the gospel? The Lord is going to do it himself. You know, I always hear about these so-called hard-shell Calvinists, the people that are, that are making this declaration. But I found Calvinists to be some of the most evangelical people that I have ever known. And I haven't run into these so-called hard-shell Calvinists that believe in the sovereignty of God and don't believe that any effort needs to be made to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying they're not there. I just have never met them. But what is the answer there? Why bother to share the gospel of God's sovereign? Would you be better off watching a football game? Is, is your time being wasted in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others? You know, think of this narrative. You could ask the question. If Jesus, I mean, ultimately, did, did, did Peter fill the nets up with fish? Was it Peter's methodology that filled these nets with fish? No, just the opposite. Just the opposite. It is Jesus that filled those nets with fish. The Lord is sovereign. He commanded the fish. They obeyed his command. They went into the nets. So why should Peter drop the nets? Because Jesus commanded him. And that is the means through which they were going to catch the fish. The fish were going to be caught in the nets. The fish didn't just jump onto the shore. Jesus commanded him to put the nets down. So understand, dear friends, God is sovereign, but God is sovereign over the ends. That is what he's going to accomplish, as well as the means. That's the way in which he has said he's going to accomplish it. And he has said he's going to call people to himself through the proclamation of the gospel. And that's what we must trust in. We, we must trust in the Lord's methods of saving others. We must trust in the Lord's methods that he has given to us to sanctify his people, to call people to faith within himself, trusting in Jesus Christ. Secondly, secondly, we see the fruitfulness of faithfulness. We see, we see the, the fruitfulness of faithfulness. Start in verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were the partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when he had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. Jesus does this miracle. And Peter sees the holiness of God. I've always found this to be such an incredible passage, specifically because of Peter's response to Jesus' miracle. This is not everyone's response when Jesus does a miracle. There's a great many that don't have this response. I mean, think about it from any other occupation. I mean, he's a fisherman. The whole purpose of his job is to catch fish. Why not celebrate it? We caught these fish. Praise God. A salesman that made a great sale would be celebrating the sale. A construction worker, an engineer that just finished a project would be celebrating what they just accomplished. I mean, this is what fishermen do. They catch fish. Why is he not celebrating here? I mean, why, why is the mood that which it is? Why is he not counting his money saying, yeah, I'm going to be able to do some upgrades on the house. This is a lot of fish. I mean, after all, look at what this guy can do. We, we need some more boats. That's, that's what we need. We, need. we can fill this place up with boats. We will be selling fish throughout the region. We will drive them down to Jerusalem and sell them. We are going to be so, so wealthy. Why does Peter not see it that way? Why is Peter's response so different from the multitude that was fed in John 6? Jesus feeds this multitude. They are fed with bread. They are fed with fish. And this people doesn't say, forgive us, for we are sinful. They say, depart from us, we are sinful people. They say, this is great. We need to make this guy king. He can just make bread. He can just make fish. Why are we going out here and fishing? Why are we going through the trouble of planting and harvesting and then keeping up with what we harvested and then grinding and then baking? Meanwhile, you have the struggle of the thorns and the thistles. You have the struggle of mold. You have the struggle of animals that are trying to eat your crops. This guy can just make it. He needs to be our king. Let's chase after him. Let's make him our king. That's not what Peter does. What's different with Peter? What's going on in Peter's mind that leads to such self-contemplation? Peter, above all, any of us could have been out there, not fishermen. We would have said, wow, that's a lot of fish. You know, that's incredible. Wow, that's, that's great. Peter saw this miracle very specifically and in a way that most people probably wouldn't have seen it. He saw the greatness of this catch of fish and the way in which they were caught. And Jesus sees, Peter sees Jesus in his power and he sees his own sin. Almost like Isaiah there in Isaiah 6. He sees the glory of God. What does he do? 
He confesses his own sin. He confesses the sin of his people. He saw the power of God here. Not these perfect fishing techniques, but rather the power of God, and it led him to see the seriousness of his own sin. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's, that's, his, that's his statement right there. That's what Peter says. And here, here's what I think is going on here. Peter sees himself here as, as, as being too sinful to work alongside Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus. A lot of times you see Jesus tell someone, your sins are forgiven. You don't see him respond to Peter in this way. And I look at this and I see Peter is seeing Jesus in his ministry and his proximity to Jesus, and Peter's proximity to Jesus, and Peter is seeing, I am not worthy to work alongside you. I'm not worthy to be one of your disciples. And I, we see, I think we see this here. The sinful men in service to the Lord. That's the reality of each and every one of us. If the Lord is going to use any one of us, it is going to be a sinner who is saved by grace and through faith. But Jesus tells him, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Jesus is going to use Peter to be a mouthpiece among the disciples. Yes, he, he, he's a man with faults. He's a man the Lord is going to continue to sanctify and to work on throughout his life. I mean, Peter is one that his faults shine loudly. Some of us are that way. If we're doing something, it's going to be loud, it's going to be bold, it's going to be declared. Some of you are quieter, and so your faults don't get demonstrated so, so publicly. But Jesus is going to use Peter who is a sinful man, to spread the gospel of the good news of the kingdom. He's going to bring this out. You know, the reality is there's, there's things that you can do in a particular cultural context. There's things that you can do to, um, certainly that you can do in your life that will um, remove you from the opportunity to serve in certain positions of ministry, most especially as an officer in the church. And that, that's most especially true if you're dealing with a sin in, in a way that's distracting for the ministry that you would be doing. But we must bring this back a little bit, and we must understand that the service that any of us do for Christ Jesus in the kingdom of God is done because of Christ's righteousness and not because of ours. It's not because of any of us have raised ourselves to a particular level of righteousness or, or, or goodness that qualifies us because of our efforts and our goodness. I mean, the reality is that's legalism. And legalism, dear friends, is going to disqualify you from ministry in the kingdom faster than any sin that you can commit. That's hard for the legalist to swallow. Some of you might even be saying, like, how, how could you say that? That's the reality. If you are trusting in your ability to keep the law, in your goodness to 
grant you your standing before God, though you may have committed so many fewer sins than so many other people, you're an an enemy of God. You're not at peace with God. Because regardless of how well you have done it, it's not good enough. Some people will say, I've tried my best. I'm working as hard as I can. It's not good enough. (laughs) That's what the proclamation of the gospel says. Your best is insufficient. I worked as hard as I can. It's insufficient. This This is how I was born. It's insufficient. You have to see that. You have to recognize that reality. And that grace that you're standing on, that you're trusting on, as one who comes to faith in Jesus Christ, is that grace that you're standing on and proclaiming in any opportunity that the Lord is giving to you in service in the kingdom. I love Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon just has, has a way of, of saying quotes like, like no one else. I ran across this quote this last week. Spurgeon said, If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry of him, for you are worse than he could ever think you to be. I mean, is, that, is that not true? You know, personally, this is, this is a passage that's always influenced me as well because I was influenced by this passage uh, very early in my Christian life. You know, I became a Christian at age 21. I came to a realization of the seriousness of my sin, the greatness of my sin. And I turned to Christ Jesus. I, I was under a very poor understanding of how God saves people. And I pretty much demonstrated no evidence of being a Christian for the vast majority of my life. But because I had said a prayer at a very early age, I was declared even at the time when I was saved, well, you, that you became a Christian back then. You just backslid. I backslid for almost 20 years. And I, and I, and I thought to myself, I, I, I realized the seriousness of my sin. I said, I cannot continue to live this way. I was reading over John 1. I said, I must change. It just made sense. I, I was like, I get this. Jesus is God. He made everything. We're sinners. He came down, lived a perfect life that we can be saved. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I living this way? This is what it says about Jesus. What am I doing? A very great change that happened in my life at that point. And, and I told myself at that time, I said, you know, I, I, I have been such a sinful person in my life. I have no hope of ever doing anything in any kind of formal ministry. What, what could I possibly, what could the Lord do with me? The best I can do, this is what I told myself, shows you shows my immaturity and ignorance. I said, the best I can do would be to just have a family and to financially support others that do ministry. As though that's not a great and high calling. As though just having a family and raising children and caring for a wife is just something that is a small little thing in the kingdom of God. It's absolutely not. And I was... I was at a popular Christian conference at the time. It was called Passion Lugiglio. Put it on. 
Um, and there was a Baptist student ministry leader at the time that was encouraging me to go. He just kept pestering me. Get pestered. Come on, you should go. Finally, I was like, okay, fine. I'll take off work. I'll go. I worked one of those jobs where you don't get paid unless you're working, so I was very inclined to work. But I said, okay, I'm going to go, and, and I went. And I was very influenced by two speakers in particular. One was John Piper, and the other was Bodie Bauckham. And I don't remember a lot from this conference. I know that if I were to sit through all the seminars at this conference, there's many people that were here uh, speaking at this conference. Those only two that I remember, and they weren't even the big-name speakers at the time. Neither one of them had really risen to any kind of providence at that time, uh, prominence rather, at that time. But I remember being encouraged by the sermons that they preached. And in particular, I distinctly remember, and I don't even think it was the purpose of the sermon. They were talking about Paul and what God was doing in Paul's life. And it hit me. I was listening as they talked about Paul and his life and how he had lived and what he had done. This man was overseeing the persecution of the church. This man, they were, they were laying the clothes of a dead man at his feet. And this is the man that the Lord used to write so much of the New Testament. This is the man that the Lord used to be the missionary to the Gentiles. I remember saying that like, I haven't done that. I haven't done anything even close to that. See, I'd seen the highness of the law of God, which had brought me to faith in Jesus Christ, but I wasn't fully taking into account the work of Christ and granting me that peace with God and, 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 and granting me even the opportunity to serve Him in any way reflected upon that. It was, it, it, was, it, was, it was overwhelming to me. Almost immediately, I went and began serving in my church. I started serving at the, the BSM, began, putting on, began serving as um, director of evangelism at the college. Had only been a Christian for about a year, but that's, I, I began to serve in that capacity and, and, and began to put on coffee houses and different things where we could bring a group of young college people together and, and share the gospel of Christ with them and encourage them to get into churches and also have a very um, good activity to do on, on a Friday night. It was an incredible relief for me to see that. The, the Lord could do anything with me at all. That's the beauty of what Jesus does. Peter's beginning to see that here in this passage. That's the beauty of what Jesus does. Peter's seeing the holiness of God, the greatness of God. He's seeing all of his sin. And he, how could the Lord ever use me? How could he partner with me? And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to show him his grace. Peter is going to stand upon the righteousness of Jesus. Yes, he's going to be changed. Yes, there's ways in which he can't live if he's going to be an apostle and a minister of God. Absolutely. But he stands there not upon his own personal righteousness, but upon the righteousness of Jesus. 
That's, that's how we have to see her. See yourself, dear friend, as the Lord sees you. The Lord sees you, dear friends. He's not seeing you. If you are in Christ, He's not seeing you through the lens of the totality of the sins that you have committed. Christ's righteousness has been put in your account. Christ's righteousness has been granted to you. That is the lens through which you are seen. You're a new creation. Christ has made you new. Christ did not save you, dear Christian, so that you can spend your time in this life wallowing around in the guilt of everything you had done prior to your conversion. Christ did not save you so that you wallow around in your own inadequacies. Not to walk in guilt. Oh, dear Christian, you need not have guilt. Christ has saved you from that. The Apostle Peter, the one that is spoken of right here, is still going to fall, is still going to fail. In Luke chapter 22, at the time when the Lord Jesus Christ could have used the support of Peter more than any other time when he's there upon the cross, or being going that direction rather, going that direction, Peter is denying Jesus multiple times. That's not the end of Peter's life. That, that's not the extent of the story. The Lord continues to work in the life of Peter. Jesus promised him, I will make you fishers of men. You will fish men now. You see this great catch? I'm going to do that through you. You are going to be the fishermen. You are going to throw out the net of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. You are going to throw that out in a way that is completely absurd in this culture and makes no sense at all. And I am going to bring men in. I'm going to pull them in. And Peter is going to stand there in Acts chapter 2 and bring it. He is going to preach. He is going to let them hear it. And Peter is standing there in Acts 2, not upon his own goodness. Peter is standing there upon Christ's righteousness for the grace of God continued to work in him in that time. Oh, Christian, please see that. Please see these opportunities. Please see these two things that we've emphasized in this sermon. The first one is these ordinary means the Lord uses, the, the declaration of the gospel and the means that he gives to us as we gather together on the Lord's day and the goodness therein, the understanding the means and the methods the Lord has given to us. And oh, see, see the sacredness and the importance of your life, the, the, the importance of how it is you order your life, the things that you do. Look out, dear Christian. Look out and, 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 and ponder, what would the Lord have me to do? How can I best use my time for Jesus? Considering his methods, his means. For it's not about us. It's not about our methods and our abilities. It is about the Lord and what he is doing. Oh, dear friends, that you would trust in him. That you would trust in him as those that are saved by grace through faith, as those who are seen righteous in Jesus Christ. 
those who stand as victors as we son. Victory we have in Christ Jesus. A mighty fortress is our God. Do you believe that, dear friend? Oh, dear friend, that you would trust in the Lord and his methods and his means. And oh, dear friend, that you would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation.